0: Hi, I'm Ethan. I love Muzzloading. Today, we're talking with Mike Bellevue of the Duelist 1954 YouTube channel. Odds are you know who Mike is and you're aware of his background, but uh, i just like to say here right at the start, I'd like to thank Mike again for coming onto the show and, and, and talking with me here. I think you'll enjoy this conversation kind of going into uh, the Duelist 1954 and the Duelist Den production and, and talking a little bit about how he makes it all happen and what he's got in store for this year.
1: Hi, I'm Mike Bellevue. Uh, those of you who I used to be on YouTube, I've heard that sound uh, quite a few times, and these days I'm known as a YouTube content creator, a YouTube host, I guess, of the Duelist 1954 channel. Uh, Before that, I was a gun writer for about 35 years. I'm, I'm mostly retired from that now, but I do a few pieces a year to keep my hand in. That's that's pretty much it. you know i'm an old 67 year old retired guy who uh, keeps busy by making youtube
0: videos <laughs> well you're not that old you're you're still in your 60s so i don't i don't know that we can call you old just yet and
1: i'll tell you what when the weather gets bad in the wintertime, time i feel pretty You're starting to feel it <laughs>
0: <laughs> i have to I'll have to keep that in mind you're you're less willing to get the powder out then <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: so how have the last 2 years been for you then you've you've been uploading a lot and i think you've you've shifted more towards making the videos, and um, you know, you've introduced yourself here as a content creator. How has that changed over the last couple of years?
1: Well, I, I guess over the last uh, probably three or four years, uh, I've taken it, I guess, more seriously as, as far as trying to be regular about it. I mean, I've I've always tried to produce you know, pretty often, but a few years ago, I I decided to try to stick with a schedule of once a week on Thursdays, and, you know, that's something I've I've pretty much stuck to since then. Every now and then, life will surprise me, and sometimes I put out bonus videos if I don't think, uh, if I don't think it's worthy of using up a Thursday, I'll, I'll put out something on a Sunday or a Saturday, and Lots of times I do those for free. Uh, those might be more personal or an update on what's going on on the channel instead of a you know more of a, a actual technical full blood video. But I've I've tried to mm-hmm. to stick with once a week and and give people a schedule that they can count on.
0: Yeah, something reliable. Yeah. When when you mention doing that for free, is that just kind of a a turn of phrase or or is that you know part of the business side of it? Well, I guess it's part of as far as the
1: side. I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's always strikes me as kind of funny i mean it, for me youtube is a business mm-hmm. I and mean, it's a creative business but it, it's a business i i intend to make some money off of it and it's actually a fairly expensive undertaking for me i mean about seven years ago i actually bought that property where Duelist end is specifically to do videos because okay. i was uh I was doing them at gun clubs and, and I still do some like now in the wintertime where I'm, I'm basically snowed out of duelist, And I'll, I'll do some at, uh, at a couple of my gun clubs. But I was, I was having trouble at one of my clubs. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and
0: a lot can go wrong if you don't have a, a contained environment.
1: Well, there are a lot of things that you can't do. You have to constrain yourself to the rules of, uh, of the venue. If you're using somebody mm-hmm. else's place, but uh, what happened in this case was was actually just kind of club politics, where mm-hmm. we had a pretty extreme difference of agreement with the, uh, the club leadership and where they were going. And I actually, because I had a bully pulpit, I, I put out a couple of videos explaining, you know, what their position meant. Uh, mm-hmm. And that made them very unhappy, and <laughs> because of that, <laughs> they actually wanted to expel me from the club. And and when your whole life is on video, it's easy for people mm-hmm. to go through it looking for things to use the excuse to get rid of you, which is which is what they did. Uh, and and unfortunately for them, that backfired, and I ended up being the club president. Oh wow! Yeah, it was, it was a pretty it was a pretty wild time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it there would not be a big interest i don't think to all the listeners but uh you all know right. these guys had, had had taken some positions to actually closed the club down so hmm. there was a real difference of opinion and uh, when they decided to get rid of me i decided I i'd like that and, and it turned out that a couple of thousand other members of the club agreed with them so i ended up being club president for a couple of years but i At that time, I thought, you know, you just can't be dependent on somebody else for Mm. something that, you know, is is one part of my livelihood, but two, something I'm really pretty passionate about. So I decided to take a chunk of my retirement money, a pretty good chunk of it, and buy that property that I established dual Sten on. Uh, And so it's a pretty big commitment, you know, so... at yeah. that point, you got to decide you're actually serious about that. I think in, in my previous sure. podcast with you, I told you I kind of got into this whole YouTube thing almost accidentally. A friend of mine talked me yeah. into it. And, you know. But at that point, I'd been doing it for a few years. And I liked doing it. I decided I wanted to keep doing it. And I wanted to be able to do it in a way that uh, – that I thought good about, you know, that I thought I was putting out a quality product. That means you've got to be able to control the environment you're working in. So, so it is kind of a business for me. But as as any YouTube gun person will tell you, uh, YouTube is not the most gun-friendly platform that you can be on.
0: For sure, and, and yeah. that
1: causes its own set of problems, and it's uh, has caused problems for me. I mean, we all lost a lot of revenue a few years ago. It took a long time to, to get it back when we went through the big boycott, yeah. caused them to you know, change their community standards and then a lot of the things they did. So I, I realized that some things that I do, which I think are pretty innocuous and, and believe me, if they're, if they're closing down my stuff and demonetizing my videos, that's pretty draconian because I have what anybody would would tell you is, is one of the most family friendly channels on YouTube. I mean,
0: absolutely. We don't
1: swear, we don't, there's no sex, there's no politics. <laughs> it's, it's something that I take quite a bit of pride in, in hearing from families, right? I'll hear that yeah. fathers and their daughters watch my channel together, you know, things like that. And I I really enjoy that. So if they're closing me down, then. Then you know they've got some fairly significant hurdles to overcome for a lot of the, uh, the crazy gun channels. Um, mm-hmm. So when I, when I think I'm gonna be in danger of being demonetized, uh, I will often just not even try to monetize those videos. I'll just do them for free okay. because. If they demonetize me, they will sell ads anyway. Uh, right. But I will I will make literally three cents on the dollar from what I would to make nothing. Um, but the wow. viewer will still okay. see a bunch of ads, and I'm not making any money from them, so they're annoyed uh, that they're seeing ads, and I, I'm not you know, getting any return off of that. So I would rather give the stuff away. And, you know, have, have my viewers just get annoyed with stuff like that. So, uh, so mm-hmm. this past year, probably 30% of my videos were actually done for free, uh, not monetized. Because if I go to the problem of allowing YouTube to demonetize me, they penalize you in the algorithm. Right. So yeah. people won't get an opportunity to see the video as much, things like that, if I just skip that whole process then there's not as much of a penalty. So, uh, And then people will say, well, why don't you go to some other platform like Full30, which I'm on, or Rumble or something like that. And I I may – I'm on Full30. Uh, I -hmm. may go to Rumble. But but the fact is, even though they are not gun-friendly, YouTube gets so many eyeballs that really nothing else can compare with it.
0: You, no, it's absolutely insane how much how many views are there.
1: Right, so you pretty much have to be there, uh, and it's it's their ball game. So you, you got to play by the rules. So I, I I've tried to talk to them on the business side and just uh, you know try to figure out where they are and why they're doing some of the things they do. And to be honest with you. They don't want to talk to you at all. No, they and don't. I think often they don't really understand why they're doing what they do. Uh, a lot of it is that whoever reviews things, you know, they've got an algorithm that they use that that makes terrible decisions sometimes. So I end up appealing a lot of my videos that they'll demonetize. And I win quite a few of them. But others I don't win. They, they get manually reviewed. You know, others I don't win. And it's funny, I, I might... I might have a 20-part a series on, say, building a uh, flintlock rifle, and maybe 10 of those will get demonetized and 20 won't. Right. And it's all the same stuff, you know? So yeah. how, how, can you, how can you be violating their standards on part one and everything is fine on part two?
2: <laughs> right, yeah.
0: It, it, it's, yeah. <laughs> where's that line there? They don't make that clear.
1: No, because I don't really think they understand yeah. themselves. I think their guidelines are are not clear enough to the people who who work for them. But that's just the environment you're working in. You gotta you, know, you gotta you gotta go with the flow. It would make
0: sense to me if like it was okay to show how to shape a stock, but not how to inlet a lock. You know, because that's like the ignition point for the muzzleloader, you know, but they don't make it that easy on us.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, it, for a while, the, the, they, their standards, they change them all the time. And uh, they uh, yeah. have changed them a little bit for the better. Like, for a while, you couldn't show disassembling or reassembling a gun. And it hmm. was just, just crazy. So, but now, you can show that if it's for the purposes of cleaning or maintaining the gun. Okay. Um, you know and they're they're concerned. I, I get in trouble a lot because they consider any modifications to be a bad thing, right? So like, yeah, if if I am, uh, you know, if I'm changing the sights so that they actually hit at the point of aim. Uh,
0: that's modifying.
1: That's the same as as taking an AR fifteen <laughs> and making it full auto as far as yeah. and and they have now they've relaxed the rules on reloading. So okay. be manufacturing a gun or manufacturing ammunition, those were remote, right. So I would do like paper cartridges for a brown bess, and they would demonetize that uh, because I was making ammunition. and <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, they, it's, it's like atomic trigger, paper cartridges, same thing, you know? Right. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I explained to him one time, and it was probably one of the most frustrating exchanges I had with him. I said, uh, I said, Look, I don't think you understand. I said, The last time that these guns that I'm showing you were involved in a mass shooting, was the boston massacre of 1775 yeah <laughs> i said i i think I, I think you get the wrong idea about this stuff but um, you know they are unshakable about that so
2: yeah
0: it's like uh talking to a brick wall it feels right
1: like. but but lately since i the, since they relaxed the uh the ammunition stuff i'm i'm gonna do some more reloading videos Oh, well, fantastic I just did some 38 long Colt stuff. I'm going to be doing some 45 black powder, 45 Colt, uh, because I actually had a video that they took off. I mean, just took it off, and I didn't know why it disappeared. Cause they never tell you anything, you know. Yeah. So I, I had a, a viewer write me saying, "Hey, you had a video on um, you know casting lead bullets uh, for 45 ACP. I don't see that anymore." I went looking, I couldn't find it either, and I thought, oh, something technical must have happened. So I uploaded it again. I pulled out of my, it came out of my files, and I uploaded it. And uh, I got an email from YouTube saying, "Hey, we took that down. Uh, You know, don't do that again. That violates our standards. We're going to give you a channel strike, well, well, and and three strikes, they take your channel down." So I thought, okay, let's. uh, Pretty serious about that. That nobody let me know. That's what they mm-hmm. done. And, and now I guess that's okay, right? So like two years later, <laughs> that would be okay again. Uh, two years ago, they would take my channel down for it. So it's it's kind of a fluid situation.
0: Yeah. Well, that, that kind of leads into our, our next question here then. You know, you've you've produced a lot of videos here lately that have a bit of a different style. Is is this kind of back and forth that you're talking about? What is what has led to this new style on your channel or is, has it been something else?
1: No, I I would have to say it's it's been something else. Um, okay. I when I first started of course I, I come from a magazine writing background mm-hmm. you know as far as the stuff goes so uh and i think i probably mentioned this in in our first conversation when when i first started i was formatting my videos kind of like a magazine article then i discovered that just doesn't work i mean one medium does not translate it to the other
2: yeah
1: and i got a lot of feedback from people telling me hey it's a shooting video get shooting
2: you know <laughs> quit talking
1: get shooting uh so, you know, I took that step to heart. I mean, I, I really do pay attention to feedback I get from my viewers because I figure they know what they like. I know what I, I, know what I like, and I'm going to do what I like. But, you know, to the extent that I think they're correct about criticism that I'm getting, I always try to take that to heart. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, so I changed the way I was doing things. So I think for the better. Now, this, this would be like 10 years ago uh, to get more shooting in less talking. And I was trying to keep videos around six minutes because that seemed to be kind of a, a magic number for people's attention span. Everybody told me YouTube people on YouTube have no attention span. <laughs> you know, you got to get in yeah. to get out. Yeah. Uh, and I, okay. So I figured six minutes was, was pretty good. And I know lots of people that try to work around that as a number,
3: mm-hmm.
1: but, uh, you know, besides guns and I don't actually watch a lot of shooting videos. I mean, I did years ago just to see what people were doing. And I, I thought a lot of it was pretty awful. But then <laughs> there's, there's some, well, I mean, honestly, and that's one yeah. of the things about making money. I mean, people will tell me, Oh yeah. YouTube shouldn't be about making money. I think it's awful that you're doing this for commercial purposes. It should be about hobbyists sharing their passion, blah, 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 blah. Well, okay. I mean, I get you on that. Uh, But a lot of the guys I see who are hobbyists sharing their passion, their stuff is awful. And, you know, God bless them. My my first stuff I thought was awful, but it does not any better.
0: Yeah, Uh, I think (laughs) when it comes to that, especially, I mean, just like with anything else in in modern times, you know, people are incentivized to to get better at something. I mean, very easily by monetary compensation.
1: Well, yeah. You you know, I I mean, everybody wants to do well. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, I want to do well. I want people to like my videos, and uh, and, and that's that's important. But yeah, I think they're they're going to vote with their eyeballs, and if they don't want to see it, well, I don't want to do stuff that I don't like, but I mm-hmm. want to do stuff that I like that other people like as well, yeah, and that I can be proud of. So, uh, and you know, I think I think that's important, and I think people should not begrudge you making a living off of that. Uh, You know, it's funny. Nobody minded when I got paid money to write magazine articles.
3: (laughs)
0: Right.
1: (laughs) You know, Uh, so. Of which
0: in the magazines, there were ads between, you know, paragraphs or pages.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right. That's how it works. So, yeah. Yeah. So I think that's okay. But uh, what I watch on, on YouTube just personally is I watch a lot of history stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm interested uh, besides guns, I'm interested in swords. And you may know I've done a number yeah. of sword videos the last couple mm-hmm. of years. But so I was watching some sword guys, guys like Matt Easton at Scala Gladiatoria, who's a friend of mine. He subscribes to my channel. Uh, Lindy Beige is another sword guy who also subscribes to, to my channel. I was watching some of their stuff and Scaligram and a few of these other guys, and it occurred to me that these guys have videos that last half an hour, and all they do is talk. I mean, they hold up a sword. You're not even a nice, still picture. I mean, they hold up a sword, and they talk about it, and they talk about you know, maybe that fighting style, or the, how that fit into a certain historical context or technical context. Uh, but anyway, they just talk for half an hour, and they get 100,000 views. You know, I yeah. mean, these guys have 300,000, million subscribers, stuff like that. So I thought, well, this business about people on YouTube will only watch a six-minute video. That's bull. I mean, people watch these, <laughs> You know, and, and I always wanted to do more of the historically-oriented type videos. So, uh, I gave that some thought. I thought, well, these guys can do that, and nobody walks away from them. So I guess it was last winter. I had I had a couple of ideas I've been kicking around for a while. And one of them uh, was on what constitutes everyday carry in the cap and ball era. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was the first one I did. I, I did two. Uh, I filmed them very close together. Uh, the other one was what were police guns in the 19th century? And they both took a lot of research. Uh, And in fact, these historical videos I've been doing this year, they take way more research and way more post-production stuff than, say, my shooting videos do. Uh, But they're worth it, I think. In in terms I really, I like the result and and people seem to have liked them too. So, so I did that one, uh, which basically constituted me talking for about half an hour. And, and really, that's how I film them, is uh, you know, I just set up that neutral background down in my shop, and put the lights on, and I write a script, and I just filmed it. And, and then I cut in all the still photographs and all the video clips that I'm using. In, into that narration you know but when I'm doing a shooting video I rarely have a script uh, I might have some bullet points or an outline of, of the sequence I'm going to do and what I'm going to talk about but, but when I do those historical videos I generally write a script it might not be word for word but it's it's fairly close to that to make sure I don't leave anything out right yeah <laughs> you know and, and I'll usually film that and, and either one long take, or it, it might be, if there's, there's a lot of facts and figures to remember. You know, I might do a series of, of short, like one page at a time takes. Okay. Uh, and, and then from there, I'll spend often two or three days putting in still pictures and maybe video clips and stuff like that, that, that then I'll put my narration over. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll take a lot of still pictures. Luckily, I've got a pretty extensive collection of guns. So I'll take a lot of still pictures. I'll find the others on the internet. I pull video clips out of my archives, and I might spend a couple of days pulling that together, and then a couple of days editing everything up. So I can, and often I'll spend a couple of weeks researching and writing to get a script that I like. So well, that adds up. Yeah, it's it's hard to get one of those out in a week. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean. It, it really is. Uh, so usually that's stuff that stretches over several weeks of doing other things. I'll do it when when things allow. But um, but anyway, those two that I did last winter, they were quite popular. Um, and, and I thought, well, okay, people are willing people are willing to put up with this. <laughs> I, wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't sure if I'd get feedback that would be, shut up. You know, will you shut up and go shoot something? Right, uh, and I do get some of that feedback. I got to admit, not not everybody loves that stuff. But um, but anyway, they did quite well. And the other thing I did, and I'd done some of this before, but I was more serious about it. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of interested in smoothbores, and it's hard for me to even say why, you know, because I really do appreciate the precision of a rifle.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But uh, smoothbores were such a big part of the 18th century. Yeah. And we shoot them so differently today than the way they were really shot. Okay. That uh, I guess I, this is what I would term more like, um, I, I guess more like archaeology in a way, you know, experimental archaeology. Yeah. Where I'll go through and I'll, you know, I'll look for documentation on how guns were really shot. Well, whatever the gun might be, sharps rifle or smoothbore or whatever, brown mess, you know. And I did this before on smoothbores, because you know, over the years I've, I've done a bunch of stuff, and I guess five or six years ago, I, I went through a lot of 18th century shooting treatises to see how, how they were really shot in, in a yeah. sporting context. And I started shooting them that way, and I wrote a, a couple of articles from Muzzleloader on it, and, um, but I'd never done the military stuff. And this past year, two years, I guess, I picked up a couple of Brown Besses and uh, and I had some civilian smoothbores. And I, I decided I really wanted to see how they fit in in either a military context or in a... Um, how would they function if you were an actual frontiersman? Using yeah. the smooth board, the way they really shot, them.
0: like practical application,
1: right? How 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 accurate are they? Uh, how how are they really used? You know that sort of thing. So that ended up actually being a lot of fun, and I think for the most part people liked it. So I've got I think the first one of those I did this past year was the combat effectiveness of the Brown Bess. Yeah. A military smooth war but I might have done a lot of civilian stuff before that um, but anyway I, I loaded paper cartridges with the actual military load uh, that I got out of Spearman's uh, or Morton Spearman's book uh, which is basically the ordnance officer's manual from the 19th century but he also hmm. gives 18th century loads in there and explains the differences between the older powder and the the 19th century powder. Okay. So I was able to put together loads that I felt were confident. I could be confident it was the, the actual kind of load that they were using. And you know, then I went out and I, I shot them out to 125 yards. At uh, and one of the cool things about that is I had these targets I had gotten at an event. They uh, were like actual red coats. Yeah,
0: yeah. Those out. are great.
1: Yeah, people love those. People are trying to buy those off me all the time. I don't have them, <laughs> and I can't find a source for them.
0: You need to you start know? up a print shop, man.
1: Actually, yeah, I may do that. I've got one. Uh, the The place where I get my mail down here is a UPS store,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they recently put in one of those big format printers.
2: Okay, yeah.
1: So I've been talking to them about, about that. <laughs> but I might end up doing that.
0: That'd be um, awesome.
1: But um, a- anyway, so I, I – played around with that and, and, and what I found is basically that my results match the results that I found in uh, you know period accounts oh cool which is they're pretty good out to 150 yards and after that you know they're crap uh, but at 150 yards you, they expected to hit the target about 50 percent of the time hmm. which doesn't sound that good but pretty good for a smooth board yeah. But the amazing thing I found when I did that is that most people today believe, particularly if you're not shooting a patch ball, which I can't find any evidence for anybody doing with a smoothbore in the 18th century. But most people believe that you can't hit the inside of a barn past 20 yards. I mean, most people tell me they would never take a shot past 50 yards with with a smoothbore. In fact, most of them won't do it with a rifle on a deer. Uh, And yeah, so they're amazed when you're hitting something at 125 yards. But that's pretty much I was pretty much expected in the 18th century Mm -hmm. with a smooth bore, and that was considered to be inaccurate. (laughs) You know, Uh, but people just don't. People's expectations for smooth bores are so low today that uh, they're just amazed that you're doing that. But to, to me, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed learning how to make paper cartridges, and yeah, I think people really enjoyed seeing that. I did something similar with civilian smoothbores uh, loaded with bare ball, you know, unpatched, just drop a ball oh, and yeah. the powder, and put a wad on top, and you get about the same results.
3: Hmm.
1: And then I, I picked up a 12-gauge Fowler this year, uh, which I really liked, and I, I did a whole thing on that one on the frontier effectiveness of that and, and I shot it with with bird shot at clay birds and then with ball at a deer sized target and a man-sized target, you know out to a hundred yards and I mean surprisingly effective hmm. uh, the, for some reason I, I could not hit that deer target to save my life. I put like you know one ball out of five on it right. but I hit the man I hit the man every time. Yeah, which says huh. <laughs> so something bad about me that I'm a terrible hunter, but I'm not bad as a killer.
0: Yeah, you're a good uh, bounty hunter, though.
1: <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't make any sense, to me, but there you have it. But, yeah, then the the other thing I did this past year in the same vein is uh, whenever I did something with a smoothbore, anytime I did, I would get 20 people asking me about buck and ball. Oh, yeah. And, I really had no interest in doing a buck and ball video because I've shot buck and ball and I was always unimpressed by it. And, uh, and, and there's a reason for that, but, but I was unimpressed because like, if you shoot it at 25, out to 50 yards, pretty much, you're going to have a target that has one giant hole in it <laughs> and three little holes in it. Right. And I always said, how dead do you need to make somebody? <laughs> I mean, any one of those holes, you're dead. Yeah. You know, so like, how dead do you need to be? What's what's the point of this? So, but people really wanted to see that. So I, uh, I racked my brains on how to do a test that would be meaningful. And I came up with one that I would do differently if I did it again. But it wasn't bad. So I I took seven life-size silhouette targets and put them on frames. And I shot five buck and ball loads at them from various yards. Mm-hmm. So what I wanted to see is how much spillover did I get? I shot the five in the center of the array, and I wanted to see if I got hits on the outside ones as well okay yeah okay now if i had to do over again i would have shot every other target instead of shooting the center mass and looking at the ends i would have shot every other target to see what happens but i honestly had no idea so i shot at 25 yards and i got the typical results that i get with bucking ball which is one big 69 caliber hole and three 32 caliber holes in each target that I shot at and I thought, yeah. And I thought, Oh, you know, but because a lot of people will tell you, Oh, fucking ball is deadly for close end fighting. That's why they did it. Well, mm. that's really not true. I, I mean, it is deadly, but it's less accurate than a single ball. And it's certainly, you know, you can only kill a guy. So dead. Right, right yeah. <laughs> so, but when I shot at 50 yards, I actually picked up a couple of holes in the outside targets. Okay. okay. So then I shot at 100 yards. And everything looked like Swiss cheese.
2: Hmm.
1: Because by now the buckshot's really spreading out.
2: Yeah.
1: Right? So, and then I understood why Washington liked that so much because you could be the most untrained bumpkin in the world but if you put a thousand of those guys shooting buck and ball at a thousand guys 125 yards away that's just a wall of lead out there you cannot miss those people
2: okay
1: i mean it's it's like running through a cheese grater you're gonna hit something and that's why it works it's not that it's deadly at close range It's because it's deadly at long range because it just throws so much lead out there.
2: Yeah,
0: you're bound to get hit by something.
1: Right, and that was a revelation to me Uh, because I always thought that the round ball coming out of bucking ball is not as accurate as the round ball alone. Right, because probably it's being jostled by the other projectiles. But whatever. But it's it's not. You know, it it would hit the person, but not right where I was aiming. The way just a round ball alone would. Uh, but at 100 yards, that don't matter. Does not matter. There's balls everywhere. You know. I, I mean, I, I would have hated to be on the other side of that wall of wet faces. Yeah. It. Uh, so I, I could see, I could see the value of it. But but until I ran that experiment, I
3: couldn't.
1: Hmm. So that was an eye opener for me, and I think it actually was for a lot of people who watched the video as well. Yeah. And, and that's that's what I like doing. I, I like. I really like getting kind of that aha moment where, you know, I really learned something I didn't know before. Here's why this worked.
0: And you're making it, you know, you're sharing that finding that you've come to, you know, in an informative and entertaining way to help get that word out that, you know, there's kind of a misconception here about how this worked and and why it was used.
1: Yeah, and I think that's to me, that's a big part of the fun. It it really is. I, I enjoy that. A lot. And then, you know, sometimes just just learning something new. I did a lot of stuff with a sharps rifle Mm -hmm. this past year. And um, I'll I'll make an admission that I'll feel bad about, you know, with all the Civil War buffs. I like the Civil War for history, Mm -hmm. but I'm not much on Civil War long guns. I mean, I like Captain Bar revolvers, but uh, rifled muskets, I never really do a lot for me. You know,
3: I'm
1: I'm kind of a footlock yeah i'm I'm an eighteenth century long hunter type guy mm-hmm. when it comes to long guns. But people have been asking me to do more civil war stuff for, for years. <laughs> and, and I I've, yeah, I just always put them off. But I was really interested. Uh, I always have been interested in kind of the the paper firing sharps rifles. Uh, but I shot one about twenty years ago. Uh, I I got one for testing and evaluation and did I did a, I think a black powder column on Guns of the Old West on it, and it was fun, but uh, man, that thing leaked gas like you wouldn't believe. Really? I mean, when I was oh yeah, in fact, in some of the pictures you just see a sheet of flame in front of my face. You can't see it yourself because it happened so fast. Hmm. But like I, I looked like I was working in a coal mine after shooting that thing for a day. Hmm. I had soot all over my face. I mean my hat was ruined uh from flames coming up. <laughs> I mean oh, the geez. whole set, right? And you get about ten shots in and it would really start to to gunk up and you couldn't cock it, I'd take it apart, clean it off, put it back together. But I'd been hearing that there are these guys that did modifications to the breech blocks that made them a lot better. Okay. So I asked a friend of mine, Mark Hubbs, who is uh, the owner of Arizona Bullet Balls, just to give him a little plug. Uh, but Mark's a retired Army archaeologist uh, and a really good guy. And he does a lot of North Scout, South Skirmish Association stuff. So I asked him, I said, do you shoot sharps? He said, yeah. And you know, he told me about Larry Sleeves, who did the, the breach blocks. So I thought, okay, you know, that would make it more fun. Mm-hmm. So basically I, I ordered a uh, Sharps 1859 infantry rifle, a Pettisoli one from Dixie Gunworks, and I did not even open the box. When I got it, I just put a label on it and I shipped it right to Larry <laughs> and had him do his magic on it. Uh, yeah. I didn't want to play with it until then. So he he redid the breech block, You know, did, did his magic. Uh, and I had them put a a higher front sight on it uh, because it really their lowest position, like most military guns, is, is 200 yard shooting. Oh, okay. So most of these NSSA guys put higher front sights on so they can file them down for like a 50 yard zero because they compete at 25 and 50 yards. Right. For the most part. Uh, so I got that back from him, and then you know I had the whole adventure of learning to make paper cartridges for it that worked and and all that business and that was quite a bit of fun Hmm. Uh, and now i've got it running pretty well yeah so next year i will probably put myself to the actual sharpsuit shooters test uh, which is a 10 by 10 inch target at 200 yards and 100 yards okay uh, 200 yards off the bench and 100 yards offhand. Uh, Got to put five shots in each of them to qualify for bird Bur- sharpshooters okay. And I'll be using a single trigger gun, not a set trigger gun. But uh, I'll see if I can do that.
0: Well, that sounds awesome. I can't wait for
2: that video to come out. Shoot.
1: Yeah, so that's that's been kind of fun, you know. So that's yeah, that was something a little bit different hmm. to do.
2: Yeah, it, it
0: sounds like there's, you know, a bit of a back and forth between you and your audience on, you know, you showing them things that they didn't know they liked and, and maybe them asking for things that you didn't know that you would come to like.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of kind of funny. I just I just did a week or so ago. Uh, in fact, I, I guess it's not this week. Uh, A video on. 38 caliber cartridges in the 19th century. Yeah, and you know that's I would not say that's setting the world on fire, but it's it's doing okay. Uh, but that was really because of of readers. I had done, uh, I had done something on the the Colt Lightning pistol, you know, the 1877 double action. Yeah, and I did some stuff on reloading cartridges for 38 long Colt. And from the comments I was getting, I could see that there was a lot of bad information out there about 38 caliber cartridges. Yeah, you know, 38 Smith & Wesson, 38 long coal, 38 short cold, that sort of thing. So I decided, well, you know, this is probably it's not a subject that I would have done a video on, but I thought it's probably something that ought to be straightened out. So I, I did a video on. And uh, it's not setting the world on fire, but but amazingly now, I've, I've had probably ten or fifteen requests to do the same thing for thirty-two caliber cartridges. Oh, really? <laughs> which I would have had no interest in doing at all. Yeah. But I probably will. It's a, it's a much simpler subject, uh, okay. than the thirty-eights. So I'm not sure why there's as much confusion as there is, but. Uh, but, of course, part of the reason is because anybody that puts their name on a cartridge, like 38 Smith & Wesson, mm-hmm. is guaranteed that uh, Mr. Colt will not want to put 38 Smith & Wesson oh, on the okay. barrel of his gun.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Right, so... I can see that happening, yeah. You know, so there's a cartridge called the 38 Colt New Police, which is <laughs> the 38 Smith & Wesson. Uh, but you know, by calling it that, Colt could avoid putting thirty Smith and Wesson on the barrel of his guns, I guess. And that, that mattered to to them, but uh, but you get a lot of a lot of confusion on that. Yeah. I don't know what those cartridges are. So anyway, I, I did that. But the next two historical things I've got planned will be double action revolvers, American double action revolvers in the nineteenth century. Nice, and uh, American pocket pistols of the nineteenth century. Ooh, okay. So those will be the next two big shoot-to-nuts thing, and and to accommodate those, I've actually bought a few new guns.
0: Mm-hmm. I've noticed online.
1: So, <laughs> yeah, well, I've got the eighteen seventy-seven. I I wanted to have one of those for a long time. I've shot a few of them, uh, but. In a way, I was a little bit leery because, you know, their their record of breaking down. In fact, the last one that I had in, in the house to use was years ago. I, I did a video on uh, double actions of the Western Frontier. Mm-hmm. So I did, I had an 1877 and 1878 cult and a Smith & Wesson uh, Frontier double action. And before I even made the video, the 1877 broke on me. Uh, which is not really that unusual. Broke the, the trigger return spring, so I fixed it. That was to a friend of mine, so I had to get a spring and fix it. But I ended up I couldn't shoot it for the video. I just had it you know, just showed it had the pictures of it, but couldn't demonstrate shooting it. So even though I think it's the prettiest double action revolver of the 19th century, yeah, you know, I, was, I was worried about buying one, but I just liked them so much. I finally decided to bite the bullet. And, and it really it occurred to me when I was getting it that maybe they're not as bad as everybody says they are because a lot of really smart gun people used them in the 19th century. Hmm. You know, I mean, John Wesley Harden's not a guy that I particularly like as a human being. But there is no doubt that he knew his guns, and also since he was a stone cold killer, he was unlikely to use a gun that was going to allow him to get killed because it didn't work.
2: Hmm.
1: And, and he practiced with his guns all the time, right? So if he was practicing with them all the time and they didn't break down on him, maybe they're not as bad as everybody says. <laughs> so that I did a video on that, and, and this is where I learned the power of clickbait. Okay. Something I've always tried to avoid, but I've decided yeah. that um, my ethics are not as strong as I thought they were, <laughs> uh, because clickbait works. I, I've demonstrated that in like three videos now, to my satisfaction, that clickbait absolutely works. So, so I titled this thing, you know, eighteen seventy seven Colt D A, uh, Gunfighters Tool, or delicate flower, and uh, and that thing has had a ton of views. Okay. But I've been shooting it a good bit. Yeah. It has not broken down on me. And it's actually, uh, it's a heck of a gun. So That's I just great. picked up its, its big brother, the 1878 and 45 Colt, uh, which I haven't shot yet. And that is reputed to have a much stronger action. It's not the breakdown queen, you know, by reputation that the 1877 is. Hmm. Uh but um, the action is really not all that different. I mean, it's like an 1877 action with some parts removed. Uh, and I didn't realize this because I've shot 78s before, but I didn't pay as much attention to the mechanism. All the locking is done by the hand. There's no bolt at all. Hmm, okay. Okay. Now the 1877, the the breakomatic. That bolt goes into the rear of the cylinder, which, which is, instead of coming up to the bottom, right, like a typical bolt does for a cylinder stop, uh, that bolt, it moves back and forth into the rear of the cylinder. And that's actually one of the problems with that gun, because it puts a little flex on the frame, hmm. and and that can cause some of the springs that are moving that thing back and forth to break. Okay. Uh, so on the 78, I guess, uh, William Mason just eliminated that entirely, and there's no bolt at all. I mean, the hand is what locks that cylinder in place. And that's not a very strong approach, especially yeah. for a, a big-caliber gun, but apparently it works because the gun had very few complaints during the 19th century, and it seems uh, to work just fine. So hmm. go figure. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I'll get that out and— Put it through its paces. It it always kind of looked like an ugly duckling to me. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and in fact, when I was buying this thing, because antiques have gotten crazy expensive lately, mm-hmm. like, like everything else, and this you know brandon economy is as people are starting to call it. <laughs> anyway, I, I found one. I, I look for shooters, not collectors. Right. And I found one that was mechanically very sound, but the, the finish is like non-existent. But it was a seven and a half inch barrel. I had wanted a shorter barrel on it. But what I found out is that seven and a half inch barrel, just like the seven and a half inch barrel single action army, it balances like a ballerina. I mean, that thing feels great in your hand. Okay. Uh, you know, it's just kind of kind of a revelation. Uh, so we'll see how it does shooting it. But I've also picked up a few pocket pistols lately to do the pocket pistol article. Mm-hmm. I had a couple I picked up a couple couple more and they they are they're actually fun little guns uh, so hopefully that'll be a that'll be a good video yeah
2: I'm
0: excited to see them This podcast is brought to you by Thor Bullets. Thor Bullets are a premium full bore muzzleloader bullet designed specifically for modern inline rifles. Thor Bullets do not require plastic sabos or belts to be fired, meaning less cleaning for you between shots. The patented copper base creates an airtight seal giving you greater distance and accuracy. Thor's unique engineering allows the bullets to retain 95% of their weight upon impact, and the controlled expansion ensures large, easy-to-follow blood trails. Thor bullets are currently available in a 50 caliber version that is sized to your specific bore. Thor is also expanding into a new 45 caliber bullet designed for faster 1 in 24 and 1 in 22 twist inline rifles. For more information on these great bullets, visit www.thorbullets.com. We'd like to thank Thor Bullets for their sponsorship of this podcast. So have you have you seen an increase in, in muzzleloading and black powder interest in recent years or, or do you think it's been pretty steady? You know, as somebody who's been very aware of it over the past, you know, for your entire career, I would say, or at least recent career.
1: Well, I would say that black powder in the form of cap and ball revolvers uh, has picked up
2: okay.
1: and I, that that is entirely due to the ammunition crisis uh okay. Uh, I've I've talked to a lot of people who have dusted off their cap and ball revolvers for the first time in twenty years <laughs> because they couldn't buy ammunition anywhere, right? Uh, and they could still find black powder stuff. Now, of course, the bad thing is caps for black powder yeah. became very scarce. I think they're starting. I think that's starting to loosen up. I mean, it, it was. For me, I've been insulated from a lot of this stuff because when I buy caps, I tend to buy like five or ten thousand at a time.
0: Yeah, so you're pretty sick.
1: Yeah, I go through a lot of them. So when things got bad, I had a heck of a lot of caps. And when I got down to about four thousand, uh, I made a couple of scores, (laughs) if you will. (laughs) Uh, a, A buddy of mine had a line on some, um, you know, RWS 1075s. Okay. Uh, So I was able to buy a thousand of those, Uh, actually 2000 of those. Um, And I, I was able to buy a a bunch of CCI number 11s, which I'm not that fond of, but they'll work in a pinch. Uh, So I picked up about 400 of those when I had a chance, just because I had a chance, but you know, I probably have 5,000 pistol caps around right now so you know i've never really run out um, and i'm getting pretty low on primers right now and I actually i actually bought a thousand small pistol primers and i could not believe what i paid for them uh i mean I, I used to pay like three cents a primer i paid like 40 cents a primer when i bought those but i think wow but i needed them mm-hmm. uh but I think that's that's going to get a little bit looser. But it's it's never gone back to the way it was. You know, things yeah. Ammunition costs went up ten times. They are going to fall to being about double what they were before all this stuff started. Uh, uh, but they're never gone back to, to where they were, and part of that is a, a function of inflation. Yeah. But that's just the way it goes. Things will go up. You know, things go up four or five times, and then when they retreat they retreat in half, which feels like a good deal, but yeah. <laughs> then you think, remember. Oh, it's a steal. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, you know, but that's that there's no, there's no help in that. I don't think. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: We kind of have to, to ride that wave, I think.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm actually surprised at how long the ammo drought has lasted. I really didn't think it would go on this long. I mean, the, the last time I went through anything like this was back in the Sandy hook era.
0: Yes. Yeah. That's and, the, that's what I was thinking of most recent right,
1: memory. Right. So we went through that. that. That was kind of funny because that also led to a boom in reloading, which, which this latest round did as well. Yeah. But in the Sandy hook period primers were never hard to find. Uh, and primers disappeared this time. So even yeah. if you were a reloader, you're having trouble this time. But I, Back when the Sandy Hook thing happened, I was, uh, I was a reloading editor for Combat Handguns, and okay. uh, and I became the reloading editor because of Sandy Hook because they never did reloading before, but all of a sudden, everybody wanted to know about reloading, so they really okay yeah so they, they did a contest with, between me and a buddy of mine, they they had us both write articles on starting reloading. And whichever one they liked best, he was going to become the reloading editor for the for the magazine. And I happened to win that one. Like, so I ended up for a number of years being the reloading editor for, for Combat Hand And I can remember telling some friends of mine but when this was at its peak, I said, uh, I said, don't buy any reloading gear now. Wait a year and then buy it on the used market because there's going to be a ton of stuff on yeah. the used market. It's never been used that you're going to be able to get for about 10 cents on a dollar uh, because all these people are panic buying this stuff now, and they're going to decide they don't like hand-loading, and you're going to really get steals on it. That's exactly what happened. Um, so we'll see what happens now. But I, but I know the biggest problem now for a guy like me as far as ammo goes is I use a lot of oddball stuff. Mm-hmm. And they're just not making any of that because right. they can't afford to stop making nine millimeter because they're selling so much nine millimeter. They're yeah. not going to stop. A lot of these eyeball ammo, like say 38 Smith and Wesson or 45 Colt even, they only used to make that stuff like once every two or three years. And that would be enough. Yeah. They would do a, run of, yeah, they'd do a run of it and then they, they would have enough to sell it for two or three years. Uh, and then when they got low, they'd do another run of it. But in order to do that, they've got to take down some machines, switch them over, all that stuff. All well, just the time it takes to do that, they could produce a million nine millimeter rounds and yeah. sell them. Uh, so they yeah, so they just not stop. And I and I don't blame them, so I totally understand that. So all of these, you know, little oddball ammunition types have just disappeared. People have bought them up and they have not made anymore for years now because they can't afford to stop what they're doing. Yeah. So, you know, luckily I reload.
0: (laughs) That's something I noticed uh, because I get a lot of questions from people trying to get, you know, started in muzzleloading and that's why I always try to talk about or or ask what other people are seeing in regards to like an increase of interest but it really struck me because, yeah, I was used to kind of Ammo shortages of, of, you know, of 2012 and, and through 2016, like we're talking about here, but I'd never seen anything that really affected muzzle loading, like the, the caps, you know, kind of fluctuated a little bit here and there in those in those previous periods. But this time around, I mean, you couldn't get molds if you wanted to cast your own round balls. You couldn't get caps. You couldn't find powder. You couldn't even find a kit. For several months last year, people were trying to find muzzle kits, and there just weren't any. If they weren't being made here, I, I should say there weren't any imported kits. Um, no,
1: that's true. I, I and, In fact, you know, I write sometimes for um, American Frontiersmen.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And... Yeah, you know, and I still will do stuff for me. Though I'm technically retired, so they got a hold of me. That's uh, so going to be getting on close to a year and a half ago, and they asked if I would do an article on building a Traditions Hawking kit.
3: Uh huh.
1: And I said no. <laughs> <But> I <laughs> had no interest in doing it. But, but I said I would build a Traditions Kentucky kit uh, and modify it. Yeah. I would do. A, I would do an article on how you can make one of those look a lot better than it comes from the factory without spending hardly any money or, have to have any, any skills. So they were cool with that, and the traditions guys, they were cool with that. And they said, as soon as we get, but we don't have any. So we got some Hawking kits last, but we don't have any, uh, any of the Kentucky kits. But as soon as we get some in country, you'll be the first one to get one. You use the article. Well, it's been a year and a half. And 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 you still haven't got any end, and nobody's got (laughs) any. Jeez. Uh, Yeah, so, yes, stuff. I think when it got harder to shoot modern stuff, a lot of guys started picking up the muzzle loading stuff because Mm -hmm. they they could still shoot. And uh, I I know that happened with Captain Paul because I'd get those questions all the time. Then that stuff disappeared. And of course, you know, that stuff comes over like once a year in a container.
0: Yeah. And that's it.
1: Yeah, that's it. Right. So once that container's sold out, I mean, your resupply time can be six months or more for, for most of these importers. And I don't know how many how many containers are sitting off the coast that has this stuff stuck in them right now.
0: Yeah, that's that's the other thing that just kind of compounds to it. I mean, those could they can have them ready. Or they could just be in a situation where they're trying to get staff back in to keep, you know, producing. It's just a heck of a situation.
1: Yeah, it's been a big problem in Europe. I mean, Italy got hit very hard with with the COVID, and so did Spain, Mm -hmm. Uh, which are two muzzle loading hubs. Yeah. So that's yeah, right. That's that's where the stuff comes from. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I talked to a lot of Europeans. Uh, because about 25% of my channel's subscribers are overseas somewhere. Okay. Uh, so I, I talked to a lot of those guys. Of course, they're all under the impression that everybody in America is dying of COVID because our, our numbers are so high. Um, yeah. And, and yet, yeah, and of course, yeah, we're not. Uh, <laughs> but countries like Italy and Spain, especially in the first surge of this stuff, they were just decimated. Yeah. Uh, italy particularly was after, and then and then they were so hard on their lockdowns that a lot of their industry was really you know severely affected so all, all that's adding to the problem of getting of getting stuff in yeah so you know but luckily i mean you get your american builders and that stuff's going pretty good and i see a lot of you know there are guys making new locks now my my friend uh, chris Lubach.
3: Mm -hmm. uh, it's
1: a nice lockout he's planning another one
0: excellent Uh,
1: you got Kibler I know you just built a Kibler kit I Mm -hmm. mean Kibler's of course making his own locks besides the kits I think Jim is revolutionizing the whole kit industry
2: yeah that's going to really
1: change things uh, I'd be paying a lot of attention if I was Jim Chambers Hmm. Uh, to, uh, to what Jim Kiblett's doing. Because if you build a Chambers kit, you better know if you trick.
0: Yeah, well, on that, it's something I see a lot is... People are building the Kibler as kind of their introductory kit because they want yeah. something that's that's nicer than one of the Traditions kits. And then if they enjoy it and want to build another one, they're jumping up to one of the chamber, Chambers or Track of the Wolf or Pecatonica kits because it's a little more difficult. It's a little more challenging for them and they can learn a little bit more.
1: Yeah. Well, I think you can, I mean, I tell everybody when they're interested in getting a kit that. If you're not going to get like an in the white jet, say from mm-hmm. TGM or whatever, it was basically all built. You're just going to stain it, <laughs> yeah, know, it. right. But get a Kibler jet. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's the equivalent as far as difficulty of building a Lyman Great Plains rifle jet,
0: with such a better rifle.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, so uh yeah. I I always tell, and I get a lot of questions from people about how can I get an affordable, historically correct long rifle? And I'll ask him, well, what's your idea of affordable? And mm-hmm. it'd be like $500 or $800. Yeah. I I'd tell him, well, you can't. I'm sorry. Yeah.
3: I wish I had a better answer
1: longer. for you. You can't. You know. But if you want to spend $1,000, you can. Yeah. <laughs> and But the only way to do it is to get a Kibler kit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm impressed. I mean, I... I actually, I probably would have built a Kibler kit by now, but Jim doesn't need the publicity.
0: <laughs> right, yeah. He's. <laughs> he
1: will give me a discount because he's telling everything
3: he, he can make.
0: It's uh, like the nine is, millimeter stuff.
3: <laughs> yeah,
1: which, which I totally respect. You know, I never oh, yeah. looked up for a discount, but I got other things to do. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I've, I've got an original brown vest I really need to rebuild. Oh, cool. Uh, so, yeah, I, I thought I'd do that this winter, but. Trying to turn out a video a week is ending up keeping me uh, kind of – especially with the new longer format stuff. It's keeping me me kind of dizzy. Yeah. It's hard to do that
0: long series stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I like doing it. And people are bugging me to get back in the shop. But you know, I enjoy doing the shop videos. They are probably the least popular in terms of views of the Mm -hmm. kinds of videos I do. Uh, However, when I go to 18th century events, they are the videos that people talk to me about the most.
0: Yes, I I find the same thing.
1: Yeah, so it's pretty obvious that the people who like them like them a great deal. Uh, But it's not... It's not a a wide area of interest.
0: So talking about the cap and ball revolvers, uh, kind of jumping back to that, is there a particular brand or model of the reproductions that are out there that you recommend to newcomers?
1: Well, uh, I actually have a video on that very question.
0: Fantastic.
1: And uh, my answer to that is a uh, Uberti, 1851 Navy. Okay. I think that is the best beginner's revolver there is uh, now uh, not to insult my friend Alessandro Pieta uh, because Pieta's making a pretty good product these days and, and mm-hmm. some of their stuff I think in the cartridge world is actually better than Uuberi's um, uh, and Pieta's quality has come up in the last 30 years amazingly yes but I would say for the most part Uberti has better build quality. Than Pieta does, and they they are more dimensionally historically correct, though neither one of them are completely correct. Yeah, they're that. not exact. Yeah, uh-huh. they 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 each have their own idiosyncrasies. So there's a couple of things I don't like about the as far as the build, and one of them is is the way they cut their hand slot. So that's just a really technical thing that. On my part. And then they've got the short arbor problem that people love to complain about. Uh, But I I have never found that it really causes any practical issues on any of the guns I've had. In fact, I have never done a short arbor fix. Okay. And and it's easy enough to do. If I was bothered by the way a gun was performing because of that, Mm -hmm. I would certainly have done it. Because all you need to do is drill and tap the end of the arbor for like an 832 screw and file it down to take up that little bit of extra room, uh, make it fit completely within the re- recess. Okay. And voila, cure you know? You're good to and go. I, <laughs> yeah. And I have never done it because I've never had a gun that had a problem because of that. Uh, but people love to talk about that. that Uberties have short arbor. So they do, but not an issue. Yeah. Uh, and now every gun I get in, if it's a cabin ball revolver, I smooth them out before I shoot them. Okay. Uh, I, I take all the burrs off. I go through. I smooth out all the internals, all the internal parts, all the bearing surfaces. Uh, I do a bunch of stuff to it before I'll ever shoot a gun, and that. And you should not have to do that. Right. But you, you do with any do. of them. You <laughs> do. <laughs> that's that's my experience anyway. Right. So, yeah, anyway, but yeah, I mean, I, I recommend. The Navy because it's very ergonomic. It's very easy to shoot. Uh, 36 caliber is less expensive to shoot in terms of ball and powder and everything than 44, and less recoil if you're recoil sensitive. And you might not know if you are if you have not shot anything. A lot of people shoot one of these guns as their first gun, Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's just they're a lot of fun. They're accurate. You know, they're they're fine. If you like that, you can step up to something else. Now. Whenever I do something, whenever I recommend a gun like that, then I'll get all the other guys who like something else better. Oh, yep. <laughs> who, who say, oh, you're crazy. Remington's the best gun there is. Well, okay, if that's what you like. Shoot it. I mean, that's hey, far be it from me. I shoot them all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I like them all. But if, you know, when people ask me what I think is the best gun to get started with, that is the best gun I think.
0: Okay, uh, so. I think that's a good recommendation. Thank you. I think we we've talked a little bit about you know kind of the big plans and some of the projects that you have lined up here. Um, are you okay to to jump to kind of the any advice for newcomers or veterans in muzzleloading and black powder?
1: One one thing I would tell everybody is don't be so worried about uh, gox hmm. closing up and being sold. Uh, I mean I'm not happy about that even even though I don't shoot GO-X that much anymore. But uh, I hate to see a company like them go out of business, but I think this, there are, is a fairly good chance of them finding a buyer. This is something a lot of people don't know, but years ago when Mick Farringer was president of GoX, before Hodgson bought it, uh, and I was I was complaining to Mick about the the quality of his wares. <laughs> and... Uh, well what had happened is that they they had made a bad batch of powder mm. they they got some bad charcoal, and I had just become the black powder editor of Guns of the Old West at that time, and one of the first things I did was a head to head test of uh all the powders out there and Goex did terrible mm. and mick Mick was incensed about that. he complained the magazine to colbert and asked I just gave him my phone number and I to listen to him. So he was railing on me and I said, Look, Mick, I'll send you my notebooks. I said, You yeah, you know, your powder did lousy. Your powder didn't even beat elephant. <laughs> <He> said, That's <laughs> pretty bad. Uh, so he said, Okay, okay. He said, Look, you must have got some of that bad batch of powder that we had. He said, We got some bad charcoal out of Canada. Mm-hmm. Which I actually I had known about that because uh, the mad monk I'm yes. I am his name now, but God, I used to know him pretty well. He had actually tested that stuff and sent me the results on it uh, because I was talking to him about how bad this stuff was. And uh, so he sent me the results of that test on uh, So I knew they had a bad batch. Uh, so that was the first time I ever had anybody go and submit it. So Mick actually sent me a case of, of Better Go X to run the test again, uh, which, which I did. But Mick was telling me, he said, look, he said, you guys, Cowboy action shooters, as well, he said, you guys only are getting black powder because the government buys so much of it. He said, if, if you guys were our only market, he said, I couldn't afford to make this stuff. He hmm. said, the government's the biggest market I've got. The military uses a ton of this stuff. He said, the next biggest market are black powder hunters. He said, they don't use much powder. He said, they might use a can in their lifetime. He right. said, but just a million of them. So they buy a million cans. He said, so that, uh, he said, they're huge. He said, then there's you guys, cowboy action shooters and Muslim competitors and stuff like that. He said, but if I had to just make it for you, he said, I'd be out of business. So.
0: And when was that? Do you remember?
1: Oh, golly. I'm I'm going to say late 90s. Okay. So that was quite a while ago, but they still. Yeah. You know, they use their big explosive shells are all powered by black powder, the real big ones. Uh, They use black powder as uh, suppression charges to cover the the flash of high explosive shells. So there'll be a black powder charge that goes off and puts all the smoke out to cover the blinding white light of the high explosive flash. Okay. To, to suppress the weight for that so they, they use a lot of black powder a lot of people don't realize that but mm-hmm. but they do I mean I, I used to be uh, in charge of supply support for all maritime Navy weapon systems and uh, so I was around back in the battleship days and yeah those battleships those 16 inch shells that's all black powder putting those things out yeah uh, wow. Yes, probably two hundred pounds of black powder firing each one of those shells off. Jeez. So, so anyway, their government's a big customer, right? So, I just got to have some contracts like that that are actually worth money uh, to that enterprise. Yeah. So I would guess there's going to be a buyer. But but besides that, the, the guys who uh, import shoots and you know made by Petro Expo, mm-hmm. they have already pledged to import as much shoots in as Goex would have produced.
0: So yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to them here in the next few weeks and, and kind of hear it from them too on, on what their plans are.
1: Yeah. So I think, I mean, this is likely to be a windfall for them.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely.
1: But, uh, so powder might get a little more expensive, uh, but I don't think there's going to be a drought of black powder. Um, uh, Now, you know, I I tend to buy pretty much by the case. Mm -hmm. So I've got a ton of black powder around right now. I'm not getting low enough to have had to order any. So I I have not been on the marketplace to see how scarce it is. But uh, I mean, the last time I needed some, I did not have any trouble. Right. You know, I generally use Swiss. Mm Mm-hmm. But I use GoX for some applications. Um, in fact, I'm about to load a bunch of, uh, of Vano powder uh, and some black powder cartridges.
0: Okay. So, How much powder do you go through in a year?
1: Uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> a lot. Uh, but Probably a case or so. Okay. You know, it's... It's hard to say. I mean, it depends on what I'm doing. I I typically order like a mixed case of 2F and 3F. -hmm.
3: Uh,
1: But since I was doing a lot of military stuff this year, I ended up ordering about 10 pounds on its own of 1.5F Swiss. It's it's just hard to say. As as I get low, sometimes – I'll wait and order a case, and other times I'll order 10 pounds or whatever granulation I, I might be getting you know, mm-hmm. too low on. So, but a lot, of, I go through a lot of powder. In uh, fact, hmm. I always tell my dad if the house catches on fire, just run down the just street.
3: Get, <laughs> Not, just get out. Don't
1: try to save anything, just get the hell out. I tell <laughs> a fire company, stay away because there's a lot of powder
3: (laughs) (laughs) I think many of us are in that situation
1: I probably have a case of of stuff that I should find something I don't care about to use it up on I'll experiment with powder and if I'm not happy with it then I might have five or six pounds of that kind of powder just hanging around oh okay you know so I have a bunch of odds I have a case just full of odds and ends uh that's well, not the best situation in the world. But when I was cowboy action shooting, I used to use whatever I didn't like for making shot shells.
0: Oh, okay. That makes sense. Because
1: it was totally non critical. Mm-hmm. You, you couldn't miss with them. <laughs> <laughs> you, know? you were I wasn't gonna use them for duck hunting but the other targets were big and close and you just couldn't miss mm-hmm. as long as as long as it went boom, that was fine. So I don't yeah. use any any kind of low-grade powder that I had hanging around. In fact, <laughs> I, I used a lot of elephant and uh, okay, in yeah, a lot of and shot shells. But I found anyway. a can
0: of that this week on the farm here.
1: Yeah, I got some empty cans that's still hanging around. I I, I tend. I don't like those plastic uh, containers. Mm-hmm. So I tend to put them in old metal containers. And use that for dispensing them, like if I'm okay. taking them to the range or something like that. So I'll have the old metal Go-X containers, and I'll, I'll slap duct tape on them and write Swiss 3F on them <laughs> and fill that up for whatever I'm doing. Uh, so people are – I'll go to the range, and people always, God, how old is that powder you're using? It's, it might only be a couple of months. You know, right, can's, yeah. Can's 10 years old. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, Mike, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, we've we've gone through the questions here. You know, where can people that are listening find you if they, if they don't already know where to find you online?
1: Uh, MikeBellaview and I should say I, I put that website together a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and um, I the people who did it for me were these like East Elbonian pirates. And I've never been happy with it. I put it on, there's a lot of content on there. And if they haven't been out there, go check it out. But I'm yeah. not that happy with the way it works. So uh, I was, spent a lot of time trying to find somebody local who could work on it for me. And I got a guy, and I'm hoping within the next month, he's got time that he's going to make some improvements I want to make readability a little bit better and to make the way the pictures scroll. Uh, a little bit better. There's some technical aspects about it that I'm not crazy about, hmm. uh, so I'm hoping to get those fixed up in the next month, and then I'll be doing like another soft relaunch on it and putting up a lot more content. But uh, I put up a, a lot of my old magazine articles are there. Oh, uh, wonderful! Blog stuff. I've got a uh, a pretty big photo gallery in there. Just uh, just a whole bunch of of stuff. So it's a lot of a lot of black powder. Uh, a lot of black powder content is out Mm -hmm. there and then of course there's the Duelist 1954 channel on youtube uh for my videos so uh, those those are the two places you can find me
2: wonderful
0: well that's all i had for you man is there anything else that you'd like to talk about or i don't want to take up your whole afternoon here
1: well i'm gonna i am going to be out at the end of march at the school of the long hunter
0: oh fantastic
1: if uh, so, for any any of your listeners who attend 18th century events, I'm going to be out doing that, and I'm going to be uh, a presenter. So I'm going to be giving a presentation on long-range flintlock rifle shooting. Ooh, cool! And I think next year I'll be out there giving a presentation on smoothbores.
0: So that'll be
1: informative. I'll be, yep, I'll be there, and I will be at uh, the Fort Loudon. 18th century market fair at the end of June, mm-hmm. and I'll be giving a presentation there. Uh, I believe on 18th century smoothbore shooting. So those That'll those are the next couple of uh, couple of things I'll be doing any any talking at. But okay, I'll be at We're... other events throughout the year. So
0: that's where people can have uh, you sign their babies and sign their muzzle yeah. orders and
1: yeah, I always love. I'm kind of a private person mm-hmm. here, you know. I, yeah, but I love meeting people at events, and you know, I try to get out quite a bit and do them. So if you see me at an event, go ahead and come on up and say hi.
0: really great time talking with Mike for this episode and uh, and like we said there I'm hoping to be able to make it out to Pennsylvania this year and next year and, and and hang out with him and and meet him in person it's it's been really neat watching Mike uh shift really from being, like he said, an article writer and a magazine contributor into kind of this multimedia production house uh, that he runs out of his house. I think it's just really, really neat to see how he's kind of changed and, and how he continues to educate all of us. About muzzleloading and black powder and antique arms in general. I'll have links in the show notes below, and as well as at Ilovesmuzzloading.com to everything that we've talked about in this episode, Mike's YouTube channel, his website, and I'll uh, I'll include a few links to some of the blog posts and and real informational articles that I that I personally enjoy reading on his on his blog for you to check out. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I did, uh, being able to have this conversation with Mike and, and all the other podcast guests that we've had over the last year or so here. If there's anybody out there that you'd like me to try to reach out and talk to for an episode, you know, please let me know. Shoot me an email at i love at gmail com. More than happy to uh, to try to talk to anybody out there uh, that's interested in in Muzzleting and black powder and and any aspect of it. You know, if you're if you're an artisan or crafts person, a living historian. Uh, You're into just the competition or the hunting side of it. I'd love to talk to you and and share your love of muzzleloading with the listeners of the show. So um, I'll I'll seek out anybody that's out there, um, but if you'd like to be on, you know, let me know. That's all I have for you this week. Thank you again so much for listening. Uh, We have quite a few, I think, interesting episodes on the way here as we head into February 2022 here. I think it's going to shape up to be a pretty good year for muzzleloading. Once again, I'm Ethan and I love muzzleloading. We'll catch you next time.